You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about commercial real estate opportunities in the 2023 market. Very interesting times. And joining me today is a very interesting family office and asset management firm with a unique strategy. I'm speaking with Daniel Farber, who is CEO at HLC Equity. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Andy. It's great to be here and great to meet your crowd. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're going to be talking about a lot today. You know, I want to get kind of a a macro landscape type update, you know, because I know you're involved with a lot of CRE investments and assets, but uh, before that, you know, I'd like to get your backstory because we've had several different family offices on the show. And you know what yep. they say, if you know one family office, you know one family office. So yep. you all have, have grown from being uh, a family office into being an active GP slash operator slash sponsor. So could you tell us a little bit about HLC Equity and how you've evolved over time? Yeah, sure. Definitely. With pleasure. And you're right. That, 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 that saying is very true and it's very true with us. Um, so the quick kind of history and story of our firm is, uh, you know, basically it wasn't this situation where it was a family office and he just kind of knew that it was a family office. Basically, um, my grandfather was a, uh, very ambitious individual who ended up having some success in business. And with that success in business, ended up building out, uh, a real estate portfolio. And for a long period of time, it was essentially kind of like a real estate portfolio of family holdings. And at a certain point in time, I growing up did not um, ever have in mind that I was joining any sort of family business or necessarily that that's even what I was going to do. I was on my own track. I actually became a journalist at the age of uh, uh, 16 as an intern and then later kept on doing that. But, you know, life takes you in all kinds of different directions. And um, after working in both journalism and in politics, I kind of um, really realized that my passion was in business. And so then it was a matter of, well, how am I going to build out my, my world in business? And just by chance at that point in time, uh, and in the family holdings that, uh, they were kind of like trying to figure out what they were going to do. And they asked me if I would join the firm. And, uh, basically, you know, the idea was if I'm going to join the firm, we're going to build this out into something, you know, bigger than what it is today. And um, that's that that's going back to uh, like kind of 2008, 2009. And we've been that's what we've been working on. And that's what we've been doing ever since. So we went from being just a pure kind of family office, uh, family holding, very kind of, you know, management, but also not not managing a lot of investors and, and, and stuff of that sort to now being a proper um, sponsor where we have hundreds of investors that we serve. And, you know, we have a whole management team built out with uh, over 50 employees. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, every family office is unique, but that's actually a story, kind of a similar path that I've heard from a couple of guests that we've had on the show, which is, you know, you have a patriarch that builds mm-hmm. a fortune, if, if I can use the term, builds a fortune and whatever. <laughs> I mean, it could be anything, right? It could be uh, plumbing supplies or whatever. Sure. So they... They, they, you know, build a fortune and then they basically start the single family office, mm-hmm. start investing in real estate. And then it's the nature, at least in my experience, the nature of family offices, they're very uh, cooperative. You know, sometimes they'll tend to do deals together. So it ends up being, you know, a family office, then maybe starts working with a couple of partners 
couple of their family offices. Yeah. And then next thing you know, it's like, well, we are kind of doing uh, investor relations. We are kind of doing <laughs> all of these things that an asset manager would do. So right. it's, it's almost as logical to to take that next step. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's very, I mean, like you're, you're right on. And that's exactly what's kind of happened within our our family. So we have some, it started out like we just had partnerships with some people that we felt very close with, uh, where it was kind of like Perry pursue, uh, in going into deals and, mm. um, and, you know, and then that developed into, okay, well, we're, we're doing this. And so, you know, and then, then it's also, well, well, what do you do? Do you continue to do that and just like kind of sit there and, you know, manage what, what you have, or do you try and grow? And I think that, um, especially, uh, you know, people who are brought up with a certain value system, it's not necessarily what you have, but it's what you have and what you do with it. And so you say, okay, well, how are we going to grow what we have? And, uh, and that's just like kind of a natural progression. Um, and, and it comes with its own challenges, right? Like, you know, you, you hear uh, sponsors who put together their own portfolio uh, with coming from nothing. And that's amazing and, and a huge challenge in and of itself. And, um, you know, but, but when, you're, when you're trying to build out kind of like you have a certain system, and a lot of times there's certain challenges that you can't even imagine because it has to do with family dynamics, politics, what's the mm -hmm. strategy. You, you can't take nearly the risk that other people would take, right? Which, is, which can, can bind you in a lot of ways. So it's just, it's, it's a different dynamic, um, but, but it, it's definitely kind of like a natural progression that we've taken. And it doesn't surprise me that there's a lot of other businesses that have you know, done, gone a similar route. But but it's not to be clear. I'm not saying it's like the well trodden path of family offices because to right. your, to your point about family dynamics and you know the relationship aspect, I think you know to go from like a single family office to then being a sponsor and to having let's say hundreds of LPs or or dozens or hundreds or whatever maybe thousands of LPs someday yep. in deals, you have to professionalize right because. Yep. Let, let's be honest, like a lot of family offices, like just aren't very professional. Would you say that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I brought this strategy to kind of like the, the management within the com within the family, and a lot of them are attorneys. Mm -hmm. And the first reaction is like, A, why would we want to share all of these great investments we're doing? B, <laughs> why would we want the liability of all of these investors on our back? Right? Like notice that. And then like, it, and then there's, there was a whole alphabet of other issues. But it, so the mindset of like, okay, why are we doing this? Why do you do this? It doesn't make sense. Is 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 a big shift. There's a big major shift that needs to take place uh, that took place in our company of like being one of like you know kind of like the holding versus the growth. And um and 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 you know it's funny because I used to get invited to these family office events, and um uh a lot of them were like okay well you know it, you you, can, you can't you can only come to our event if you're like a single family office or if you're just investing capital right that's the only way you can come so i used to get invited invited to all these events and then i got some and i honestly i didn't find a ton of value out of the certain ones that i went to um but i uh you know i basically got put in a in a position where now they said, oh, well, you're raising capital now for your deals. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, so you can't come to our events anymore because you're raising capital. And, and, and I was like, so you basically want only family offices where there's like a bunch of people and they're not working. They're just writing checks all day. You don't really want like entrepreneurial, you know, like, like people that are going out there and trying to, you know, develop and grow things. So it was kind of disenchanting to hear that, but such is the world. Yeah, it's, it's almost, you know, 
the difference between, you know, the, the former kind of family office that you reference, it's almost just like a really, really big LP, right? Mm-hmm. Just yeah. like right. an yeah. LP writing really big checks. But, but right. to me, I mean, even a smaller family office in my experience, you know, not always, you know, experts at everything. Like I think sometimes yeah. there are knowledge gaps in smaller family offices, but I think you do see a lot of entrepreneurialism, like looking for GP, LP or, or co-GP deals. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like you said, every family is different, right? And it really has a lot to do with the values that are that are brought in. And so, you know, like, like my, my grandfather, when he was 90, I, I, he must have been 94. And he was just, a, you know, 24-7 on the clock working type of person, child of the depression. That's just what he did. And I remember I said, hey, you know, you've, you've, you've done well for yourself. Why don't you go down to Florida and enjoy yourself? And he could not even believe that I was saying that. And his basically his response, having grown up during the depression was, are you joking me? I have seen people go from having everything to having nothing in a matter of days. And there's no way that I can't work. Right. Now, that's an extreme. But but I'm just saying, like, I think that those values and that work ethic is definitely, you know, it, it, it it's in some uh, groups and, and others may have split or not had, I, you know, I don't, I can't speak to others. I just know that within us, that's kind of where the entrepreneurial drive comes from. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Jimmy and I, uh, my co-founder here at Wealth Channel, we talk about, we call them the three phases of wealth. You know, there's kind of that initial accumulation stage to kind of where yeah. a, a, a person saves their nest egg. And then there's that stage two, phase two, where, you know, you you switch from becoming you have to work all the time to now you're becoming a more passive investor because at some point your assets begin to have more earning power than you do. You know, if you've been successful and if you've invested well, but it's that third stage to me that's the most interesting, which is where you're creating a legacy and mm-hmm. your wealth is now you know it's it's going to live on beyond you. And I think that's kind mm-hmm. of the heart soul of a family office is the idea of legacy. But I think it's a real it's a challenge, you know, where, you know, kind of what you're to your point of a patriarch had a very different upbringing and, and even a different mindset than the second oh, yeah. generation or third generation. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to replicate that exact mindset, right? I'm thinking of nope. like, you know, maybe not so much anymore, but, but uh, like patriarchs who started family offices who went through World War II or something. It's yeah. like, you're yeah. not going to replicate that mindset in a millennial no. or Gen Gen Z or something. It's, it's just not possible. So, in your experience, you know, when you have multi generational family offices and you're trying to transmit those those values, you know, where do you see that succeed or or, or maybe not succeed with ultra high net worth families that are able to imbue that family philosophy and you know the philosophy of hard work and thinking long-term to the subsequent generations? Sure. Well, so for, first and foremost, like, you know, seeing is believing and, you know, you know, things aren't taught, they're caught, right? So first yeah. and foremost, it's whatever is seen, um, you know, within the actions that are that leadership show, right? And then, you know, when you speak about legacy, I mean, like that can mean so many things. For me, it's more about values and what you're trying to, you know, give over to your, to your, to your children. Now, you know, I have children and what type of values are you trying to give to your children? Um, but I definitely think that when it comes to work ethic, it's something that, uh, you know, that you see. And then for us, I mean, our purpose where it's, 
um, you know, built on legacy, creating thriving communities. And a lot of things that we do are community oriented, both in business and in the philanthropic world. And so I think that kind of like when you have those things and they're spoken about um, and acted upon on a regular basis, that it kind of, you know, hopefully sinks in. Another really important thing, I think, is that people understand that just because it works for one person doesn't mean it's going to work for another one. And, and then everybody's going to have their own ways. And, you know, so people shouldn't necessarily be working in, in a certain business because it's maybe not what's the best fit for them. They should be doing what they want to do in life and what they feel their calling is in life. And just because one person did, you know, ran a business one way doesn't mean that it should have been run the other way by the next generation or by, you know, and vice versa. So I think that there's a lot of nuance and dynamics that goes into here. I don't think that there's set rules. And honestly, I don't think that anybody has the exact code. I think that some groups have been able to do a good job and whether that's, you know, everything they did and pure intention or a mixture of intention and luck, you know, we'll never know. But I think it's a, it's, it's a mixture at the end of the day of both of those, I think. Yeah, no. Well, personally, I'm going to discount the luck portion of it. You hit on two themes that I thought were really interesting. The first one was just kind of that holistic. I don't know if you used the word mission, but just like you talked about how your businesses and philanthropy are community oriented. And I mm -hmm. think when a, a family, this is any family, not just ultra high net worth family, but when a family has a shared mission and a shared purpose, that's, you know, mm -hmm. external to the family. And mm -hmm. like you said, more, more is, is caught than taught. And yep. I think then that's, that's, you know, being part of a family. Well, what's our mission? This is what we do. You kind of learn that growing up and it kind of gives you something, you know, even with a father and a son or, or with brothers, something that you're doing together, you know, or siblings, mm -hmm. you know, I should say brothers mm -hmm. and sisters. So I think that mission oriented component of it is really important. And then the yep. other thing you mentioned to me was flexibility, you know, and again, I think this applies to any sort of family, not just family office, but just not every child is going to be the same. Not every adult is going to be the same. Uh, different businesses are different. And then also there there's there can be different management styles or different valid ways of running a business. And you don't always have to look at it like black or white, sure. my way or the highway. And probably if you do, you're probably just setting yourself up, you know, for, for failure. And, 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 you know, your company is over 70 years old. I mean, mm -hmm. I, and in commercial real estate, I mean, even for family offices, commercial real estate, private equity, that's, that's pretty old. I mean, there aren't a lot right. of firms that, you yeah. know, we like we we've had the uh, inland on the show, and I can't remember if they're forty years old or fifty. But and and to me, that's like that's a venerable private equity yeah. company being forty or fifty, so seventy years old. Right. You know, yeah. that's very rare. How does that longevity change the culture, the work culture, or or the philosophy in the family office at, at the sure. company? Yeah, and and it's changed right throughout that period of time. So like. We're very much um, a people-oriented uh, organization now where I think that that was less of a focus once upon a time. And that also goes into like, I'm just a very, like I recognize I need, you know, great people on the team to do some great things. And that's what we've done. That wasn't necessarily the, the prior uh, approach, um, you know, just in terms of growth. Um, and so I think that it's a mixture of, you know, of, of, of kind of like understanding that you're in, in a new reality and um, again, you know, th those those values do transform through the very different generations. 
Um, and so nowadays, what we've done actually, and what drives our company today is our employees have actually, um, some of them have been around for a very long time. They had actually defined our core values within the company, right? Not, not necessarily like the, the entire purpose, but within the company, when they came and they said, hey, these are what we actually live by day by day, right? So it was less like, hey, guys, this is our values because I think this is important. But it was like, no, Daniel and family, this is what we live by, right? So it's caring, owning it, integrity and ingenuity. But those wow, so you guys, people- you guys did that bottom up. So that wasn't yeah. like a top down. Yeah. CEO right. dictates to everyone, hey, here's what our values are. This was a right. this was a right. collaborative bottom up approach. That's really interesting. Hundred percent, right? And, and like a, a ten or fifteen year old company couldn't really do that, right? Because I mean, like they, they you know, they, they're going to have people coming and going, and then like you know, mm. we were able to sit down with our team and say, okay, guys, we're doing this now as like a strategic growth. We're we're bringing in more better people practices, and so let's sit around the table and let's talk about what our values are. And I was quiet. And these are what they came up with after going through a bunch of different stuff. So this is our team speaking, which I think is very powerful. And you can only have in, a, in an organization that goes across decades. We have a woman who works in our company who has been at the company for as long as I've been alive. Uh, and, um, and then we also, what's very you know, like interesting is that is our relationships are very deep, right? We've had... De- groups we've done deals with for over 50 years. But so when I first got in the business, um, certain people that I used to deal with, they're no longer here because some of those people used to deal with kind of like older generation of the, of, the, of the family, right? So I've actually seen like cycles of people go in and out of the business. So I think it's very informing, informative from a industry standpoint and also just from a life standpoint to realize like we're here and then we do our work and we do as well as we can. And, you know, it ends at a certain point. Yeah. I mean, even, even that actually is really interesting to me because so many startup companies, and let's use the word startup loosely, it could be a 15 year old company. The founder has been there the longest, um, you know, right. I founded it and yeah, for the life of the company until either, you know, uh, I pass away or I retire or whatever founder and CEO led companies, whereas you, you're a CEO, but in, in a way, you know, you're jun- not junior in, in the organizational chart, but in seniority, you have other people there who are actually yeah. senior to you in seniority. And so yeah. I think that that also speaks of you. I think that's, you know, very wise to, you know, listen to people mm-hmm. who have been there a long time. And, and, and it's refreshing too, because I think, you know, this, this might be a cultural thing. I think in America, you know, we have a tendency to people are in the workforce, they hit a certain age and it's kind of like, well, you know, you're old, you don't understand how mobile phones work or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Dub them out the door unceremoniously. It's very yeah. refreshing for me to hear a totally different attitude of like, oh, yeah. we respect yeah. your time and, you know, t- teach us what you think, you know, what you've seen in the past several decades. Yeah, I know a hundred percent. Also some of the, I mean, the people who have been around for a long time, it, you know, it, whether they're, the most technologically, um, you know, uh, savvy or not is doesn't compare to some of the historical information or, you know, just stuff that we come across. And we, you know, being kind of like a family office and family enterprise, you have a lot of um, structuring and bureaucratic stuff you have to deal with. And it's very valuable to have some of those, uh, some of those data points um, just come like, oh, yeah, I remember in, you know, 1965 when this was done. And it's like, okay, thanks. I wasn't alive yet. 
<laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that. Yeah. You know, all these uh, Gen Z or whatever kids who are poking fun at, at baby boomers or whoever struggling to use yeah. technology. It's like, okay, yeah. you know what? In defense of the baby boomers or older generations, they knew how to ask people on a date and socialize. Okay. The younger yeah. generation are socially, they're like totally non-functional. So let's That's just respect right. every generation. <laughs> weak points, strong points. Um, well, Definitely. let's shift a little bit. This is so interesting. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that about the family office. I always love to hear <laughs> uh, about that. Very refreshing. I want to shift to you know some of your research and um, some of your content that I've reviewed and, and just the CRA, CRE, excuse yep. me, landscape yep. in general. Sure. First of all, I should ask is is commercial real estate and real estate investments are those the main focus? Of yeah, that that is our primary uh, business and also the primary weight of our portfolio. Yes. Understood. So you said last year, and I have this in my notes, quote, the period of easy money during the cycle has officially ended. Yeah. So, you know, I guess I'm curious what, what this cycle means to you. Like, is this the foreseeable future? Is this three years, five years, seven years? Yeah. Well, I think that, so first of all, that came from a CEO letter that I write and I, you know, would love anybody who's interested. Uh, you can read the CEO letter on our website and uh, feel free to reach out. I, I love getting people's opinions and their thoughts because, you know, this is just, for me, life is about a conversation. So there is no, you know, I, I think that I'm right. It's just the way I view things. Um, and uh, I, I have no idea, honestly, because it's very hard to predict what the Fed is going to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And it all has to do with the Fed. So, you know, I would, I, it was, you know, during COVID, I was not able to predict that the Fed was going to rate or lower rates to such an ex extreme extent. I, you know, it was pretty easy to predict what would happen as a result, i.e. inflation. Um, so now they're in a very tough, you know, point. Um, and, you know, they're, I think that I definitely, it's very hard to see a scenario where they're able to tame inflation without keeping interest rates, at least where they are, which historically is not so high. Uh, compared to the last 10 years, it's high. Well, you know, it is and it isn't. I mean, he, w here's what I would say with interest rates. It's, it all depends to me, their relationship with what bonds are paying, you know, 10, 20, 30 right. year treasuries. Because when people reference, you know, 60s, 70s or 80s, I'm like, okay, interest rates were higher, but what were bond yields? Right. You know, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. so, you know, or it's or it's like when people talk about interest rates being, you know, X in the 60s or 70s when they purchased a home. And I'm like, yeah, but what in the nominal price of a home? What you know, what percentage of the median salary was a home then? Right. So I think when the yeah. prices of these other assets, you know, that in reference to the interest rates change, it does. I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at is. Right. Are we indefinitely in a cycle of financial repression? Like, is that going to last for the foreseeable yeah, so future? And just so I understand, you're saying that kind of like the incremental difference between what you could, like, just to use a simple example, what you could borrow at and what you could get a home for, because homes were much cheaper back then in comparison to where the debt is, was yeah. much different than it is today. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. That, it, and and it, that also relates to all assets, right? Bonds and so on and so forth. Yeah. yeah and so, just the, the idea that, that, you know, bonds, you know, yields are up and yields on treasuries are up, but they're still significantly generally, you know, below the inflation rate. So it's still a negative mm -hmm. real right. yield. 
Right. And that, that I mean, to me, it's, it's always seemed a little bit strange. It's pretty much been the case. It feels like it's been the case for my whole professional lifetime. I mean, maybe I need to like right. get the stats up. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's so, so it seems to me, you know, it, it kind of like interest rates aren't that high historically. That's true. Mm-hmm. But it seems like they're kind of high given where bond yields are. Right. I, I, guess I hear you. So, so you're saying that you're saying that it, it's hard for you to see rates not going down. Is that what you're saying? I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. I guess I'm saying that, that 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 I don't even know what normal is anymore. Yeah, you know, like right. like if if interest rates are going to be higher, why aren't prices settling? Like it seems like well, then prices should be getting swatted down, and but we're right. not seeing that too much in the bond market. You know, to me, yields aren't as high right. as they should be, and so it's yeah. just it's it's just hard. I guess yeah, I don't know exactly what I'm I'm asking. Except so this is so this is this is the this is the real question and this is why I say it's so hard to know because it's impossible to know how the Fed will respond. Um, if 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 we want prices to come down, right? And I'm talking about like asset prices to come down. Then you have to get all the liquidity out of the market, obviously, right? That's what they're trying to do. That's going to take a lot of time given all of the liquidity that went into the market. Mm-hmm. And then the question becomes, and this is what I mean by what is the Fed going to do? You know, we just saw them save banks, right? Whether that's right or wrong or whatever, that's what happened, right? So we know that there's trillions of dollars of loan maturities coming up, both on the corporate debt side and on the real estate side. Now, are they going to let those just all default? And if so, then like asset prices are going to come down and, you know, they're going to have to bring down, uh, you know, and eventually everything will come back and they'll do, they'll go back to easing and so on and so forth, right? The question is, they, they, they propped up prices so much artificially. Are they also going to kind of like save things artificially once they start cracking? Yeah, in, they in are. The, I mean, the they are, right? I guess that is kind of my question is how yeah. do you even tamp inflation down when you signal to everyone that right. you're not really willing to drain liquidity from the market? Not if it's like serious pain, right? Right. Yep. Yep. 100%. Right. So, I, so our, our overall outlook basically what we're investing on, right? So, cause I, I don't view my job as like, I don't need to predict. I just need to, you know, kind of have my thesis of where things could go and then also protect if they go the other way. Cause you know, we could be wrong. Right. So our overall outlook right now is that we're investing in real estate. That's what we invest in. That's what we've always done. And the reason that we're doing, the reason we do it is when numbers make sense. So we have not been huge buyers over the last four years. Um, you know, we bought some deals, but we have not grown our portfolio the way that we have, would have wanted to simply because prices didn't make sense to us. We see, and I, I'm not talking about Armageddon here. We see prices are starting to make sense. Um, they're not amazing. They're not, you know, uber attractive. Um, but we're looking at deals now where we can assume loans at call it three and a half percent. We're able to get some sort of call it a five to six percent cap rate. Nothing amazing. Um, we're not buying those right now, but we're definitely looking at them and we have our hat in the ring. Um, and, and, and so that's kind of like our overall outlook because the way we see it is, yes, we could buy it and think in, in the asset prices could go way down, but we would be able to weather the storm. And on the flip side, this may be a buying opportunity right now and things may go back and cap rates might, you know, go back down to, you know, levels that we couldn't imagine. I don't, think that's going to happen, but, but it could. So that's kind of how we're, and that's how we're looking. And also I think it's important to note that like, so this goes into our story of our firm, our overall strategy 
of uh, of uh, investing. I, I tell people that I have a very short term horizon of 30 years, right? So, so I, I, not really 30 years, but but the point is, is that yeah. you know you got to look at this stuff over the long term. Um, the whole we can get into kind of like private equity and the whole short short term hold and why that you know yeah well daniel i i I have to say i love the 30-year mindset but but that kind of brings back my point about financial repression it's like i have just learned that the markets can stay crazy for so long and it's like i I, you might need 30 years to 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 wait it out but you mentioned one thing which is you know it's beginning to make sense maybe to buy you're not necessarily Mm -hmm. doing these deals yet but if there's like a five and a half cap and you're mm-hmm. able to assume debt at three and a half percent or whatever. Those sorts yep. of deals, though, they're dependent on the ability to assume debt, right? Because right. you're not you're not able to get new debt at three and a half percent. Obviously, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So the deals that we're looking at, they generally would have at least six or seven years remaining on their loan until they mature. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So, so, so basically, you know, for you to find value you're looking at value in both components. It's, to me, that's mm-hmm. almost built-in value just in the debt piece. Like just right. having having attractive yeah. debt is like its own form of right. value creation. Um, yep. And then and then a five and a half cap, that sounds pretty good. I guess I'm curious, like are, like, are you seeing that with like high quality multifamily or what sectors would you yeah. be seeing those sorts of economics in right now? Yeah, so we currently have two LOIs on uh, on in the multifamily space for those exact types of deals. Mm-hmm. Um, both, you know, pretty high quality multifamily, not necessarily like Uber Class A, but kind of Class B to Class A um, uh, deals. And uh, the reasons for sales are not necessarily distressed. A lot, you know, there are groups that come out and they have to sell because they're you know, a lot of funds. They have a five year hold and they have to get out now, um, and so that you know, so they're getting out. Well, it's just, that uh, sounds it, strange just to me, scenario. Daniel. It's just, it yeah. sounds strange to liquidate when you have three and a half percent debt though. So you're saying exactly. it's, just, it, it's more on like the fund structures forcing that liquidation, not not some sort of uh, liquidity crisis or debt problem. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we're, that's why I, that goes into the long-term outlook, right? Like mm-hmm. if you sold in 2022, great. If you didn't and you have to sell because you have LPs and all kinds of institutions that have to get their redemptions or whatever, as opposed to just doing what our family's done forever, which is if it makes sense to sell, then you sell once in a while. But in general, you do way better when you hold on and you, you know, you don't have tax events and you keep on appreciating and depreciating. Right. So, so that, that goes into our overall philosophy of, of being, you know, more longer term. And I don't, you know, everybody says that and oh, we're so long term minded, but we actually have like, the track record of investments that can show that that is really what we believe in. And we've gotten much better results as a whole because of it. So how do you then structure? So like presuming, let's talk about your LPs now and broadly. I mean, we don't necessarily need to discuss a specific product, but how do Mm -hmm. you then structure your offerings to allow LPs to come in and kind of, uh, I presume you almost want to like, set their expectations, obviously, yeah. that this, this yeah. isn't like a five-year DST or, or whatever. It's sure. very different. Then how do you sure. structure the product, though, to align the, okay. you know, the LPs to have that same long-term philosophy yeah. time horizon as you do? Yeah, sure. So first of all, it's important. Like we, we serve now. So there's our overall how we've been 
you know, been able to build up a portfolio. And then there's right now what we do and what we're able to do and so on and so forth. So we serve a wide range of investor space. We have family offices, ultra high net worth individuals, high net worth individuals. And then we have a couple of private equity groups and wealth, wealth management groups that we work with. Mm-hmm. So depending on the project, obviously, if we have private equity and some wealth management groups, they want to know their exact time horizon. And so if it, if it, if it's a deal that we think, okay, yes, we can make it a five-year deal. Worst case scenario, if they want out, we want to stay in. We, we figure out some sort of buyout with them so they can get out, right? So sure. we do have that uh, on certain deals. But we also have some investors who are also long-term, mainly wealthy families that they say, you know, like you are our arm of real estate investors mm-hmm. or investment group. You are our real estate arm. And, uh, and we want to place our capital with you. And when you feel that it's the right time to sell, we'll sell and maybe we'll exchange and, and get into a different property. Maybe we won't. But for the meantime, we're there. We'll refi when it makes sense. And, uh, you know, generally our terms are set between five to 10 years, just depending on the deal. Um, but we have investors who, who, you know, they, they we bought properties and we thought that it was going to be a 6% cash on cash. And now they're getting 10% on equity. And they're saying, why, you know, like, don't sell. Let's just stay in this. Right. So, yeah. so it really depends on, on the deal and the investor base that comes in, but very, you know, high level, we, we do, uh, like to, to keep things, um, uh, long term, which is not necessarily to the benefit of the GP, right? Generally, it benefits LPs more than it benefits the GP because yep. usually we build up the GP value within the first three years. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, a lot of GPs will have, you know, acquisition fees, financing, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of those fees are transactional. Um, yep. So like the, the more offerings you have, the more activity there is, there's more fee generation. But I think it's really interesting though, just products aside, just the culture of your family office and, you know, mm-hmm. partnering with other families. I think it can be one of those things that like attracts like. So, you know, if you have LPs coming into your funnel, Kind of learn yeah. about who you are and what you do. It's it, again, it, I think it's all about expectations. On that note, you know, you because you guys are at this end of the illiquid end of the spectrum and you're almost like proud of it, which I respect. And actually, that's a point I've been making a lot lately. There's, there's all these intermittent liquidity products now or these private REITs that have monthly, quarterly redemptions. You have interval mm-hmm. funds, all these products. I, you know, I don't have any, to me, they're neutral. Like I, I mm-hmm. like, I think product innovation can be a great thing. Yeah. Liquid to illiquid can be neutral, although I might almost argue it the other way where I think illiquidity can be a feature, not a bug sometimes because of behavioral traps that investors can get in and things like that. Sure. But I, I'm kind of increasingly annoyed at these intermittent liquidity products or these intermittent liquidity REITs, because to me, they're like half pregnant that they uh-huh. are. It's like you're either right. illiquid or you're not. You're either pregnant right. if you're not. There's no half illiquid, and you know. Yeah. I guess do you have do you have any opinion on that, or or you know, throw your hat in the ring on that concept? Yeah, I mean, look, if it if it works, like the whole secondaries market, if it works, then that's great for people to depend on it. I think it's very challenging, especially now. Like you know, I don't know. Like let's just say, uh, I mean, open ended funded funds they make sense, right? If you can get in and out, that makes sense. Up until now. Like, I don't know what it, uh, I, I really don't know the apparatus that open-ended funds are going to do if they have to mark to market now what they bought in 2021 and how people are going to get out. Right. So it's going to, it, it could potentially get messy. So, um, you, you know, I, I think that 
I don't think about it that much because I think that in our eyes, you know, like we, I don't, I'm not the type of person that sits there with like a stock portfolio and says, okay, is the stock up today? Is the stock up today? I'm more of a person that says like, oh, quarterly, I have cash flow hitting my bank account. I like that, right? Like that, that helps. No, me totally. Live. Yeah. So, so, so I, I, I mean, I get, I get it. I, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm also kind of neutral on the whole secondary thing. It, you know, like we're not opposed to working with secondary groups if they can make it work. But I think it's, you know, it's very hard to make any promises like, oh yeah, we can, you will be liquid because we have this secondary product. Uh, I think that's a very hard thing to promise people or to, you know, even make any representation towards. Yeah, it totally, you know, well, I do think one thing is interesting right now, though, that you mentioned, you know, uh, if some of these private funds or sponsors that are offering redemptions, if they had to mark to market right now, or, mm -hmm. or maybe six months from now, presuming that yep. asset prices might fall, that would be a serious problem. And I've had David Auer back on the show. We talked about this some, and even Michael mm -hmm. Episcope, who, you know, he runs a yep. family office and they have private funds. I appreciated yep. Michael's honesty about it, running a yep. private investment firm. And he basically right. told me, we're looking at publicly traded REITs real hard because they offer very strong value on a uh -huh. relative basis. So, I mean, at what point, if, if you know, you mentioned private deals or, or like multifamily deals, they're beginning to make sense. It's not like you're being teed up for a fat pitch though, right? But it's like yep. beginning to make sense. But mm -hmm. at what point do you look at publicly traded REITs and say, well, with this discount to book value, yep. it's, it's weird. It's almost like there's a liquidity penalty right now right. with commercial real estate. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. I, I, I look at REITs as just two different animals. Like I know the underlying asset that it's priced to is supposed to be reflective of whatever, you know, the, 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 the stock price is. But I think that yeah. there's such a big disconnect between the two. Um, Theoretically, sure. Like if you're an opportunistic buyer and you want to own stock and maybe build up like a portfolio on REITs, there, there probably is a discount to the inherent value. Um, but it, it's not, you know, it's not something uh, honestly that I think about that much because, you know, when, when I see if there's a company that I like, like there are certain companies, REITs, that I have a lot of respect in the industry for what they're doing. And I see, oh, their stock is pretty cheap right now. So then maybe I'll go and just buy it just because, I'll, you know, I it, usually if it, it's, it, it's something it's in a kind of vertical that we're not active in, but, but I don't have like a real opinion in terms of what we should build up a whole REIT portfolio within kind of like the office. I, I just don't, I, I don't, I don't view it that way. I, I just see them as so different. Like they're such different animals, you know, like the, the liquidity, but also the, the volatility from the stocks, from the market. And then also the ability, the benefits you have when you're invested in private real estate uh, from a tax perspective and, do you think that control is a big element for families too, who are, you know, they might be looking at REITs for real estate exposure, but mm -hmm. then they're also looking, you know, co-investing with a firm yeah. like yours. Do you think it's uh, the lack of control that might kind of scare them away from REITs? It's just, they're just more comfortable going with yeah. a private operator. I think so. I mean, like we're, we're a relationship driven, like, you know, like, and I don't mean that in like the, the like each way of, uh, you know, where like we, we should, like our, our investors, you know, they, they text us and you can't text, you know, the CEO of, of the REIT and say, Hey, are you guys selling that property? And so our, our, you know, investors, especially our, you know, large ones, they become, you know, real partners in these deals. 
And, um, and, and you can't get that in the public markets. I mean, first of all, I don't even know, you know, they're, they're probably prohibited from speaking to you. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Okay. Well, I know we've, we've been uh, talking for a while. I want to be respectful of your time, but you know, you mentioned you're not really in the business of making predictions, but I sure. would be curious, you know, maybe you're more like a captain of a ship and you have to be prepared for different types of weather or something. Yeah. What, what do you expect in the second half of this year? Do you think that, especially in multifamily or another kind of, you know, the bigger sectors of CRE, do you expect asset prices to, to be a little more attractive later in the year? Do you think you'll be more active later on in the year? Yeah. So, uh, well, let me just answer it by saying that we are um, looking very seriously at raising our uh, first fund. We've done, you know, tons of deals and private syndications. And we're looking at doing our first fund right now uh, because we are, we are saying basically there, if there will be opportunity within the next 20 years, it's going to be right now. And, you know, I don't know that I'm, you know, I, I don't know about this blood on the streets and distress and all that stuff. It would make a ton of sense because it looks like, you know, it's coming. Um, but we do know that right now numbers are looking much more attractive than they have for a very long time. And so we are in acquisition mode and we will continue to look at stuff. And I think that there will be opportunities for people who are on the ground with the right relationships. Um, you know, I mean, we have, you know, we're, we have people calling and speaking to every broker and all the owners in our markets all the time, because I don't know that it's going to be this huge 2008 event, but I think that there, whenever there's some sort of disruption, there's these dislocations that all of a sudden interesting things happen. By the way, the last time this happened was in COVID, even though prices shot up in April, you know, in, in May after COVID hit is when we did some really interesting deals because nobody else was playing. And, yep. and so, so we, we had some interesting things happen and it wasn't that there was this major distress. It's just little dislocations. If you're in the market and you have boots on the ground, you're able to find those dislocations. So we do expect those, you know, we, we, we think that that's going to happen and we think we're going to be able to buy some stuff. That's awesome. I, I just love talking with a family office, talking about we have dry powder. We're mm -hmm. teeing up to do deals because there's been so much dry powder on the sidelines with family yeah. offices. And yeah. I remember talking about it. You know, we were at a family office conference. Uh, this would have been October, I think, of last year. And we were talking about the dry powder. And it's mm -hmm. just like, I, I think we're going to be waiting but yep. we're not going to be waiting five years, obviously, right. you know, so yep. it's, it's more into 2023. So I, you know, I, I really respect that. And, um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, again, that long-term philosophy, you're mm -hmm. willing to be patient yep, you know, and, and let the right deal come along because yep. the, the, those are the best deals, you know, when you wait for the sure. truly good deal rather than reaching, you know, I just right. got to do a deal, you know? Right. So, so that being said, I understand you're teeing up to, to launch a fund at, at some point soon. Where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about HLC equity? Sure, definitely. So we would love to connect with anybody. Um, uh, first of all, on our website, there's tons of information. You can just go to hlcequity.com. There's a place to sign up there. We will, if somebody you know wants to send a note there, we will get back to you very quickly. Um, that's another thing is we, you know, um, we uh, try to be as prompt as possible in all of our response times, especially with our with our LPs. And uh, and then uh, I'm you know happy to connect with people on social media, uh, primarily on LinkedIn. So look me on LinkedIn, Daniel Farber. 
um, and, you know, more than happy to connect with everybody. And uh, yeah. Thanks, Daniel. We'll be sure to link to those, uh, the website and your LinkedIn and our show notes as well to make it easy for our users. And thanks again for coming on the show today. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.